Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to the webinar COVID-19 and the impact on the IFRS and the current IFRS statements. My name is Philip. As you um, already know, you've been receiving emails uh, from me in the past few days regarding this uh, webinar. Uh, I would like to welcome you all. We're just waiting for a few more attendees to join us. We have already 156 as of now. We're expecting around 200 uh, plus to join us uh, for this webinar. Uh, as you know, the instructor and expert trainer is uh, Mike Turner. Um, he's been uh, teaching the IFRS GAP um, as well as the um, uh, IPSAS courses. Uh, for the past few years with Leron Institute, and he'll be, of course, here to present you in the next hour or so actual impact the COVID-19 has on the on the hyper um, statements. So I'll just put Mike on right now, and he can take over. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening there. Yeah, Mike, can you turn on your camera? Yes, it's on, is it? Yes, now it's on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great. So as I was saying, we have around 160 participants as of now, so we can uh, slowly start, and we're expecting this number to go up to, uh, up to 200. Uh, thank you very much, Mike, for joining us, and we hope for a great uh, webinar. Thank you. Can I start now? Sure, yes, go ahead. All right, great. All right, good evening, everybody. I'm gonna share a PowerPoint presentation I'll be going through. Um, one moment here. So you should see the PowerPoint on your screen there, the COVID-19 IFRS impact webinar. Everybody sees that, correct? Philip, it's there, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Yep. Okay, great. So I'll go now. So what I want to do um, tonight is there is a significant impact on IFRS because of COVID-19. And it covers quite a few standards. Because we only have a short time tonight, I wanted to focus on the standards on the topic list here. And my intention is after each standard, I will pause for questions and move on to the next standard. So the table of contents for tonight, I'll give a little bit about myself. I'll go through the impact of IFRS 15, revenue from contract with customers, IFRS 16 leases, IS 36 impairment of non-current assets, a bid on financial instruments, I'm looking at provisions, contingent liabilities, and contingent assets. The issues of COVID-19 obviously are significant um, from a financial impact with the business interruption, and it's going to give accountants a lot of headaches. So the purpose of tonight is to go through the issues. Obviously, in this short session, I can't go into them too deep. I will go into them in a deep, obviously, in a, in a longer course, because on these five topics, it's impossible. The slides that I've, I've selected are from my regular course, and I've selected out specific slides 
that are impacted by COVID-19. If you're not that familiar with the topic, I cannot go through too much background of the different standards in this short webinar. So I'm assuming you have knowledge of the topics. If that is an issue, um, obviously that would require you to get up to speed on those particular standards. Purpose is to get you thinking. One of the first questions that I got asked about the COVID-19 was, is this going to be an adjusting event or a non-adjusting event for IS-10? Obviously, if it's adjusting, we go back and adjust our comparatives. And if it's not, we do not. Probably the outbreak is not the event that caused the financial issues. Probably the issues that are triggered the uh, accounting aspect were the measures to contain the virus. And a lot of those measures to contain the virus were probably done in April in most jurisdictions around the world. So we'd probably conclude that it's not an adjusting event. So there are a number of things we're gonna have to deal with in the 2020 accounts, and they're not going to be easy. Let me start off giving you a little bit of intro about myself. So I'm a US CPA, a UK Chartered Accountant, as well as a CFA. I worked around the globe. For example, in 2019, I worked with the Ministry of Finance in Mongolia and their IFRS and IPSIS adoption. IPSIS is IFRS for governments. I did some work in the United Kingdom. I was involved in a special project in China last year before COVID-19, luckily as their Ministry of Finance is hiring the best experts they can from around the globe to train their top professionals so they can have more influence on the ISB, um, on the ISB's body who sets standards. In other words, they want the Chinese government, Ministry of Finance, wants to have more of an influence on IFRS since they hired a number of trainers like myself, and I trained their top people there on how, to, on how we IFRS should work. I also worked with the Ministry of Finance in Vietnam last year quite extensively. And of course, regularly I've been to the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait a number of times. So I have an extensive global experience. Um, in the GCC region, I've been doing a lot of work there the last five years. I was very involved in the SABIC IFRS implementation, very familiar with their issues in that region. Um, I work a lot with Lerone on IFRS. IPSIS is IFRS for governments. I work with the Chartered Accountants of Ireland. I'm their examiner in their US GAAP diploma. And probably they're gonna appoint me, hopefully as an examiner in the IFRS one. With ICAW, the Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, I work with them all over the globe as well. And one of my interesting projects obviously was NATO, the military alignments in Europe on their accrual accounting. I do a couple other things as well. I'm not just an academic, I think what sets me apart is I'm practical, I'm pragmatic, and I'm a businessman. In India, I have a team of 70 people. We serve as doctors and lawyers and stuff in California. So I'm not just a theoretical person, I do this stuff and so forth. In Romania, I'm in real estate. That's a bit of land there that I've been working on developing. Um, gonna grow some Christmas trees there. And that's the map how we bought land years ago and try to get all these pieces and cut them together. The point is, I'm not an academic, I wanna be quite practical. Let's start with our first topic here, which is IFRS 15. And I'm not gonna go a background through the topic that much. I'm gonna assume that you have some comprehension of the standard, but I wanna go through the impact and what we need to consider. If you need to 
preview what's in the standard, that's obviously going to require a lot more than we can cover in tonight. Now, as you should be aware, IFRS 15 has a five-step model. The first step is about the collectability. Um, this identify the contract. The first issue is identify the contract. The second issue is the performance obligations. The third issue is the transaction price. The fourth issue is going to be the allocation of the transfer price. And the fifth issue is to recognize revenue. So what I want to talk about is how those five issues there are impacted specifically through IFRS um, through COVID. So that's the idea. So please, any questions you have, jot them down. And I want to go through them after this one slide. So we're going to go through this step by step, um, one by one. So the first question is, the first question is, identify contract with customer. Now, does COVID-19 affect this? And if I asked, most of you would say, well, Mike, why would it affect, why would it affect, um, why would, why would it, it affect, you know, IFRS 15? Well, one of the key issues. Okay, uh, one uh, minor connection uh, issue. We don't see the screen. Can you share the screen, the um, actual presentation? The PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, yeah. Funny things here. Okay, hold on. So, apologies. Um, can you see it now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Now it's okay. Yeah, you can you can continue. Okay. So, yeah. So the first thing is identify contracts with customers. Now, one of the key things of a contract for it to be a contract in IFRS is collectability. Now, let's say you're an electric company and the law says you cannot disconnect people's power. So if I'm gonna supply power to you in the month of May and I know that you cannot pay me, under IFRS 15, we don't have a contract because in order to have a contract, before the service is delivered, we have to expect payment. You may choose to supply to some of your clients, even though collectability is a significant issue for strategic purposes or political purposes. You don't wanna cut off your, your customers in this time of crisis, maybe the government won't allow you. So for a number of industries, there will be situations where there is no contract not from a legal point of view, but from an IFRS 15 perspective. The other issue we have, so that's point one. Do we have a contract? Collectability is key there. Going on to point two, the performance obligations. I don't expect a significant change in the performance obligations. Because when you do your IFRS 15 analysis, you're going to identify those separate promises. And we wouldn't expect that to change. However, 
because of COVID-19, when we move on to box three, the transaction price, we're gonna have some fun. Reduce demand, changes your assumptions. Your returns, look at the airlines now. I had a flight from to India from the US and my airline didn't wanna cancel it. I called the credit card company and said, listen, the flight's canceled. I don't wanna pay. How can you charge me for a canceled flight? Cruise ships, a number of companies are having massive returns. Those returns are gonna affect a lot of your allocation. The variable consideration. One of the big issues of the transaction price is there's a fixed consideration and the variable consideration. The fixed is pretty straightforward, but COVID-19 could have significant impact on variable consideration. In India, I have my 70 staff working from home. Um, usage of different aspects of, of my office has gone to zero. With this probably unfortunate looming recession, if it hasn't started already, um, demand will be down. So variable consideration, those models, and remember what IFRS 15 talks about, is this highly probable threshold. All our models are gonna be thrown out the window. So when we look at the highly probable threshold for many industries, it'll be a headache. Look, if you're McDonald's, variable consideration is irrelevant. You walk into the store, you buy a Big Mac, you eat it, you're done. Got it. But when you sell products and products that come with services or warranties, or the big issue with variable consideration, like in Telcom, you get a phone now, a service later. So all those issues with variable consideration are really going to require significant review. Price concessions. A lot of times there are volume rebates to our, to our customers, and the models for those volume rebates will have to be redone. So, there are so many aspects there about the transaction price. One aspect, when I do work with the hospitals, for example, the US is kind of a, an interesting system where in the United States, you go to a doctor or a hospital. I mean, I, I remember once I went to my eye doctor and they, charged, they sent me a bill for $400. I was very angry. But because I was a cash payment with no insurance, the actual real price was 150. So what happens in the United States is they bill ridiculous amounts in the medical industry and they'll take a smaller amount. Well, we need to be very careful to distinguish between is it a price concession or is it actually a doubtful debt? So if I'm your customer, I call and say, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, I want a price reduction. Now, if it's because I have an ability to pay, it's an IFRS 9 issue, it doesn't impact revenue. If it's a price concession because, look, the airline flight I was wanted to take or the service that I wanted, you gave me an alternative one which isn't as good, and that's a discount, and it doesn't relate to ability to pay, that impacts revenue. So the difference between uh, price concession under IFRS 15 and then doubtful debt under IFRS 9 is sometimes a bit of a headache to analyze. When we look at allocating the, and, and going on to box four, when we allocate the transaction price, 
Well, potentially the prices of the different components might change. Because remember the way we allocate transaction prices, we take the different components, the best is the market method. And we split the transaction price based on the market price of those components. Well, with this COVID-19, the new era we're in, you might find that some of those components take a nosedive. Usually in recessions, what happens is luxury items or items that are more discretionary, the demand plummets. I mean, today, uh, what's doing very well is supermarkets. There are huge lines are sold out. So obviously, you know, for some, some products you sell, you know, like hand sanitizer, for example, they're doing very well. For other products, they're not doing very well. So how we allocate that transaction price is, is obviously the same, but when we look at the market value of the different components, that may change. And the hardest thing with this is it's happening so quick. In the, the GFC, the global financial crisis, that's the common term for 2008, that didn't happen like in a month. I mean, I have to take a step back. A month ago, I was in India. I flew to Romania because I wanted to go to Saudi because I thought I could go from India. Three weeks later, the whole world closed down. I had no clue. This happened so fast and with such speed that there are going to be pricing distortions. And it's going to be very, these are going to require more analysis and auditors are going to give you some grief going through this. Um, recognizing revenue in point five, again, the thing about recognizing revenue, recognizing revenue there um, that we need to look at is breakages. So obviously breakages, the airline, you buy a return ticket, you just use one of it, not the round turn. And you recognize revenue over the amount you expect to deliver, including breakages. So the reduced demand is going to have a significant influence or could have a significant impact on breakages. We have to disclose significant policies on, or judgments on uncertainties. And I'm sure that the virus is going to have a lot of significant policies on airlines, on hotels, on many different industries. We really don't know. So those are my initial comments on IFRS 15. If you can, I'll just pause for one for one or two minutes. If you have any questions on IFRS 15, please type them in the chat box or Philip, if you can guide them on what to do there, and then I'll go to those questions. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, you can put your questions in the uh, question uh, questions dashboard that you see on your screen, basically on the right of the platform. And uh, if there are any questions, Mike, of course, can briefly address them. All the questions are I can't hear you. I think that's been resolved. 
Are there any questions on the topic, actually? Okay, here we are. Will such changes in standalone prices expected to impact existing contracts? Um, remember, what we need to do in IFRS 15, Zavir, is look at all of the revenue that hasn't been recognized, those contract assets they're termed. And so, yes, those contract assets could need to be recalculated um, based on the new, the new prices of the different components. Well, hold on. Well, let me take a step back. On Initially, we look at the prices to determine the value of our separate components, and that's done. So that's so then we're not going to go back and recalculate those separate components. But what we're going to do is recognize revenue as when those components are used up. So if you expect 100 flights of unrecognized revenue, now it's 50, you're going to, you're going to have a different amount to recognize per flight. You're not going to go back and recalculate the different components. So once you do that, that's it. This is force majeure in most cases where the accounting standards might not be applied. That's not really true. The accounting standards are designed to apply to all situations. Force majeure simply means that sometimes you, you not, might not be, uh, an amount might not be collectible. So initially it was recognized as collectible. That could be a change in your revenue estimate. So if obviously I'm an airline and I book fees up front and force majeure, I can't deliver, that could trigger either a revenue reversal for a delivered service where you booked revenue, which you're not going to be able to collect, or obviously for an undelivered service where you have to give a refund or something else. So with force majeure, the accounting standards will deal with, remember, IFRS, especially compared to U.S. GAAP, is the framework of concepts. And that framework of concepts is designed to apply to any situation, COVID-19, a nuclear war, it doesn't matter. So um, there are going to be situations here that are challenging. Um, we might be looking at variable consideration. We might come up with some models that are just a very big headache. But remember, with variable consideration, the, the threshold highly probable is very clear in the standard. Perhaps a lot of our variable consideration will no longer meet the highly probable criteria. And now that'll have some recalibration. So, so force majeure or not, IFRS is for any situation. Correct. Revenues, so another question is companies will not be able to recognize revenue due to collectability issues. We got to be very careful here, uh, Ikram. Um, if it's a collectability issue, well, well, it depends. Take a step back. If it's delivered or undelivered. So let's take a scenario, the electricity. I'm a national electric company and by law, I can't turn off your power. I know that you have a high probability of not paying. If I can't turn off your power and you have a high probability of not paying, the power I'm going to deliver when that is issue is identified is not revenue because under IFRS 15, there is no contract. Now, if it's a product or service I've already delivered and I've booked the revenue, that remains unchanged because if the collectability issue comes after delivery, at the point of delivery, we met step one in the five-step model. We expect it to be collectible. And when it becomes uncollectible, that doesn't impact revenue. That's an IFRS 9 issue of basically 
uh, an impairment of, of our of a financial asset. Um, Zubar is saying the price is already allocated. I think what you're saying there is once you allocate the price, yes, you don't get go back and redo the allocation. That is correct, um, unless there is a modification of a contract, which is a different issue. Um, the next question there is how is the impact in the telecom sector as contract revenue substantially high? Um, well, the main thing there is a, a lot of people in the telecom sector we take the roaming charges and so forth, and we usually say they don't meet the highly probable thresholds is what a lot of owned telecoms do, so that we recognize that when the income is, is incurred. Um, for, for the telecom industry, where it's part of the contract value, we might have to relook at some of that stuff where it doesn't meet the highly probable threshold, which could be a revision of those amounts. I'm not quite sure what the question is. Is this only for new contracts entered into 2020 um, relates to? Please, when you type your questions in the box, try to give them as much detail as I can. But basically, any contract that has an undelivered component could be would be impacted. So if I'm an electric company and I signed a contract to give you power for five years, and all of a sudden now I realize that you're not going to pay me, well, now it was a contract per IFRS 15, and now it goes on to being no longer a contract. Just a point to note for each of these um, topics, I'll do about 10 to 15 minutes of questions. And Philip, can you please let me know when I've exceeded that? You keep in my alarm clock there. Sure, Mike. Um, Okay, what is the price concession? So someone's asking about that. So let's say, um, this is from Mohammed uh, Iman Zafet. So let's say, for example, you say, hey, Mike, I just bought a refrigerator from you. And you know what happened? They delivered it and my door is dented. And I said, listen, Mohammed, I'll tell you what, the refrigerator was 300 real or 1,000 real. Instead of giving me you another one, it's dented at the back, keep it, I'll give you a 100 real discount. Now, the reason why I gave you a price concession is because what I've given you had a scratch. That has nothing to do with IFRS 9. That price concession is an impact of revenue. Second scenario, Mohammed called me again and said, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, I lost my job. I really can't pay you the thousand. I said, no problem, Mohammed, let's do a deal. Instead of paying me the thousand, I'll, let, I'll tell you what, you know, you're a nice guy, just pay me 800. That is not a price concession for IFRS 15. That is an IFRS 9 issue. That is a price adjustment that goes to, um, that is an impairment. The reason of that discount is because of a financial constraint. So there's a big difference between a price concession where there's a delivery issue versus, or a quality issue versus you can't pay, give me a discount, please. So you can't pay, you want a discount is an IFRS 9 issue, and a price concession is where the customer says, listen, you know, it's dented, I can return it. Um, it has a 30-day return period, but everybody else is lowering their prices because of COVID-19. You want to match it, I'll send it back to you. Say, no, 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 don't send it back to me. I'll help you match it.
will there be a, a webinar on COVID-19 impact on IPSIS? Well, the issues for IPSIS and IFRS are pretty similar here. Obviously, there are different things in governments. Um, if Philip wants to arrange that, I can do that as well. That's up to Philip. If we know a customer cannot pay, can record the revenue? Well, here's the way it works. You book the revenue at the point of delivery. And at the point of delivery, if the revenue is earned, that does not get reversed. If the point of delivery, if it met step one, you have a contract, which means you expect collectability. And when it becomes uncollectible, that is not a revenue reversal, that is an IFRS 9 impairment issue. If because of COVID-19, you're still going to deliver something to a customer that is now questionable, that's different. If it hasn't been delivered yet, you can only book revenue at point of delivery if you expect it to be collectible at that point in time. Food and beverage industry, um, food and beverage industry, um, impact there. Well, see, a lot of the food and beverage industry is usually going to be um, you deliver the product. So the impact of having, so the biggest issue in IFRS 15 is you get two pieces, one piece now, one piece tomorrow, what revenue to defer. If you deliver the full thing now and there's nothing to defer till later, IFRS 15 got a big impact. Take McDonald's. Does IFRS 15 impact McDonald's? Well, you walk into the store, you buy a Big Mac, there's your revenue, you chow it, you eat it. You know, if you if you eat half of it today, half of it tomorrow, that's just really academic. So with McDonald's or, or those kind of food places, probably no, or you buy a sheep, or you buy, you buy some cow, or you buy some bread, you, you deliver it and you're done. Now, obviously, like in the drinks industry, like say Coca-Cola, where you have the refrigerators or you have the uh, products you give with the, with, with, with the food, uh, freezers and ice cream and so forth, where those are considered separate performance obligations, there could be some impact on those calculations. But for most food and beverage industries, I would expect not a lot of impact. What if the way the performance obligation changed? Well, if the performance obligation changed, that's a contract revision. So that requires a recalculation. Just like, for example, if you get a mobile phone for you and your wife and your two kids, you go on vacation and someone drops the phone in the river or the ocean, and you go back to the phone company and say, well, give me another phone. They say, okay, fine, we're going to extend your family plan for another, another one year. That's going to be a recalibration. So um, that seems to me that if the performance obligation changed, that would be a triggering event, just like you know, a renovation on your house. Your your wife comes in and says, I'm sorry, uh, the kitchen's too small, so the contractor makes, makes it a little bit bigger. You have to recalculate the, you have to do a recalculation because obviously you've, you've changed the contractual term. So yes, that would be some recalculations there if you decide to change what you're delivering to a customer.
Is there any disclosure in needed in case of a major decrease in contracts revenue or risk? There's a lot of disclosures of significant policies of judgments and stuff. So, yes, that would require obviously more analysis on a specific set of circumstances. But yes, this this there's going to be a lot of headache disclosures this year. So the good news for your accountants is you'll get some overtime, hopefully get some bonuses. But the bad news is you probably don't get paid by the hour. So tough luck there. What about ongoing contracts where prices are fixed for a term? If the price is fixed and you expect to get paid and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't affect it. If I have a long-term contract to buy, buy, to sell you power, and I know that you can't pay three months bills, you could go from a situation where you have a contract to where you don't. But if I have a contract that's fixed price that people expect to pay, nothing changes, then probably zero impact. So based on new policies then, and then the provisions to be passed, I'm not sure that question not sure those questions. Hello, hello. Please change the slide. What about evaluations of assets? Does it make any sense in these circumstances? What do you, you think? Well, um, I presume that's an impairment question. Let me get to impairment because that's not really covered in IFRS 15. If it's if it's valuation of contract assets, yes, that would you would contract assets just like financial assets. You apply the IFRS 9. Um, ECL model. So of course, um, those contract assets, those contract assets, um, money you need to receive and so forth. Actually, more your 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 yeah your receivables more and your, your yeah what you need to collect. There could be issues there, of course, because you might not get the money. You work in a utility. Hang on. Sorry, the questions are going back and forth here. So we know the customer can't pay. I already covered that, I think. Covered that one. Sorry, my screen popped back up here. Well, if you work in a utility company and your customers don't pay, but the government's gonna pay, um, I would need to look at more facts and circumstances on that, but my impact, my, my initial there would be you're getting the revenue is just being paid for by the government, just like in the United States where there are programs where low-income low people get their power bills paid by the government. So if you're a low-income person, your power bill is paid by the government, from the utilities point of view, it's still revenue. So I got to be careful because unless I hear all the facts and circumstances, it's very easy for me to miss something. Extended services contract, you know, again, as long as you, you expect to get paid, nothing changes. Yes, if it changes things or if those extended service contracts, you may choose to supply a service that you may not get paid for because it's it's politically important, et cetera. You might not have a contract revenue, might not be able to be looked at. Of course, you have a provision, Mara, if you have a provide a service or a good, and after you you cannot be you're not going to get paid that's going to trigger um where you where you have to have a impairment under ifrs 9. mike uh, we can of course uh, move on towards the next uh, ifrs ifr standards okay, we have limited time and we already have 15 minutes allocated for this 
for this standard. So please move on to the next one. Yeah, thank you. Keep me on target there, okay. All right, so the next, what's going on here? Okay, the next topic is IFRS 16 leases. Um, now, what is happening with leases, I have some friends in the United States that own various pieces of real estate. And landlords are getting calls and the calls are saying, I want a rent-free period or reduce my rent or give me a discount. So that is a lease modification. And again, um, when you have a lease modification, remember, so if I give you six, the next three months rent-free, you can't book zero rent for the next three months. That rent, that concession needs to be spread over the lease term. So there's going to be a lot of issues where a lot of landlords or by laws or et cetera, rents are going to be adjusted. And when the rent is adjusted, um, what we need to be looking at there is making sure that we don't take the entire adjustment. Obviously, for us as a tenant, it's going to be a smaller expense, correct? So we don't want to take that smaller expense. Now, what we need to do is to spread that benefit out over the remaining contract term. So if there's three years left in my lease and you say, okay, Mike, next three months because of COVID is zero, what I need to do is to take my rent over the entire remaining term and make a constant charge. So the next three months, although I might be showing zero, what I also, what I need, I might be paying zero, zero in my cash flow, in the statement of financial performance, we need to book an expense. So that's the main thing with leases. It's going to have a lot of impact there um, on leases from that point of view. If there's a rent concession, um, there might be issues of collectability as well to look at. Um, reassessment of the variable rates and, and so forth. Well, obviously, if it relates to future um, period, we have to obviously re, re, recal, re, recalibrate our um, our lease liability and our right of use asset. So there, there, there will be re, recalibration because a number of landlords around the world, what they're basically doing is under pressure or whatever, they're giving discounts. And that's basically a triggering event. That's the main issue in IFRS 16. I think there's less issues in 16 than probably 15. It's mainly a more simple one. Um, are there any questions? I'll just take for maybe three or four minutes, not many, because it's a shorter standard. If there are any questions specifically on IFRS 16 leases, can you type those in the question box? Any questions on IFRS 16? I don't see any questions there on 16. Okay, um, there's one here from Zama. 
Do you see the need to reassess the minimum MLPs, minimum lease payments, in accordance with IFRS 16, considering the low interest rates nowadays? Well, the low interest rates, how is that going to, if the minimum lease payment is, is paid to interest rates, um, if the lease payments are, so I, I need, we need to see the scenario there. I'm trying to imagine that because usually from a tenant's point of view, whatever the interest rate is, it's irrelevant. If your lease payments are linked to interest, um, then obviously that would be a, a, a recalibration there. But usually the tenant doesn't get a price concession because of a low interest rate. So I need to see a scenario there. Osma, I'm not really exactly sure why you asked that question. You probably have something in your mind. And what I notice when I do all this teaching and training and consulting is people have something in their mind. And if you just tell me everything in like one sentence, I sometimes miss the point. And when I get to the full point, I usually realize, ah, that's what you mean. And um, so if you perhaps email that question to Philip uh, with more details, I can come back to you on that. Um, if government compensates your business for losses, well, that's under IS-20 government grants. And the key thing about government grants is um, if it's an unconditional uh, money that they give you, you simply are going to book it as revenue when they give it to you or when you're entitled to receive it. So the matching concept doesn't really uh, exist in IS-20. So um, the government says, you know, if we'll give you this money and if there's no conditions, it's going to go straight to revenue. Um, if the contract is for three years, but I was given rent for, for rent free for three months on first year. Yes, you still amortized everything out. My point is, well, I might have given you three months rent free initially last year, and this year I might give you an additional three months rent free. So we have to recalculate the rent free period from this point forward to spread it out. So at least from this point forward, the monthly rent charge is constant for the remaining lease term. That was my point. We, Nazir, you said we can't recognize revenue during the force majeure. I didn't say that. You can't recognize revenue if you don't have a contract. What is a contract? It's signed, et cetera, or it's agreed with your client, and you expect to get paid. So my point there was, if you signed a contract with me, and because of what has happened, I don't expect that you're going to pay me because you've lost your job, and I'm still going to give you electricity, I can't recognize revenue because under IFRS 15, I don't have a contract. That was my point there. Of course, if I still expect you to pay me, of course I'm gonna recognize revenue. I think I explained the rent three charge. Look, if the discount is not material, it doesn't matter. Skip it. Everything in IFRS is based on materiality. What I do notice there when it comes to materiality, um, is that if it's immaterial, so what? But a lot of times what the auditors will say is, Mike, how do you know it's not material? You'll go through all of this exercise and work to prove it's not material. So, um, so Fussell, if you're talking about something being material, the auditors might say, well, hold on, Fussell, maybe it is material. We need to see the calculation. So the biggest headache that I get is um, you think it's not material, but I'm your auditor, say, prove it to me. And in proving it to me, you go through all of this headache and it might not be material, but you still have to do the work. 
So Abdullah, do I have says asked me do I have to reassess the current contract and the rate used? Well, if the contract is based on a uh, on an index or rate such as U.S. dollars or so forth, yes, that's in your 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 variable lease that's linked to an index or a rate. Those are recalibrated at every balance sheet date. That was in my slide there on this particular slide in front of you right now, the middle box, reassessment of the variable rate. Um, okay, remember from Abdullah Majad, there is no such thing as an operating lease anymore. That's the old standard. There is one kind of lease now. So when we recognize a leasing contract as an operating one, there is no operating leases. There are only one type of leases. Now, what can be like the old operating leases are those short-term leases or those leases for low-value items. But everything else is just like an old finance lease, effectively. How the deferred grace period can be treated if it will be not be mentioned in the contract? Well, the deferred, I'm just going to cover that with IFRS 9, but the deferred grace period is an impairment under IFRS 9 unless you can charge the client for interest. If you cannot charge the client for interest, that is an impairment. So that's one of the things that we have to bear in mind. So yes, uh, Mohammed, um, we're gonna go into all, these are, look, when I teach leases, I was doing a course in uh, for one of the um, supermarket changes in 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 the UAE. We spent a whole day on leases. So uh, what I'm trying to get you to do now, and the purpose of this webinar is, let's get out the issues, and you can go research them yourself, or you can come on to a training course to learn more about them. Because um, the purpose of today's webinar is to go through what are all the issues. And if you don't know how to deal with the issues, then you got to find a way to retool yourself to, to actually tackle them. So, um, you know, like the question about an operating lease, that obviously needs a bit of making sure we understand that those leases no longer exist. So the question on the minimum lease payments from SIAD, I think I covered that. Adjusted discount rates, uh, no. There are guidelines in the standard when you adjust the discount rate. Um, generally, the discount rate is the rate you used at inception. Unless it's, unless it's variable as opposed to fixed, there are criteria about that that you need to go through. But usually, if the lease payment is fixed, the interest rate, sorry, based on a fixed interest rate, you don't go back and rechange it just because interest rates change. Discounts from a landlord, Ms. Shot, well, you don't pay three months' rent. Nope. You, you spread the discount over the entire remaining contract term. So if there's another 20 months left, the next three months are free. You have a constant charge over seven over the 20 months based on 17 months you pay rent, three months you don't. You can't take three months, zero rent. You spread it all out. Depreciation of ROUs. What it says in IAS 16, whoa, this is an interesting one here. Um, if an asset is available for use, it must be depreciated. So you got me there. I'm going to look that one up. So, the, so what your argument is basically saying is, look, 
the asset is not available for use. Well, the standards that really talk about worth available for use and it's not. Um, the reason why it's not available for use is not because of the asset, it's because of um, the environment of virus spreading. So my instinct would be that ROUs have to be depreciated just like I have 16 assets and you do not stop depreciation. You're, if you're trying to argue that it's not available for use, I can't depreciate it. I'd have to think about that one. Look at some, look at, speak to some of my colleagues in the large accounting firms. My instinct would be that was a very, very clever comment, but I wouldn't accept it. I think they're going to, I think the big four are going to say you must depreciate it because it's available for use in the manner intended. It's just people can't come into your store. So I think that's a very, I don't think, I, I thinking, sorry, thinking about it again, I would say you must depreciate it. Tough. Even if the mall is closed by the authorities. Yep. That's Thank tough. You. Thank you, Mike. Um, one more time, I just want to mention to all attendees, the different scenarios that you're asking and imposing and all the details that you would like, of course, to uh, be um, answered will be available and will be provided on the actual course, which is 17 to 21st of May. 17 to 21st of May, it's a five days course. Basically, Mike covers each day different set of standards and you will have an opportunity, of course, to go more into details. The webinar as it is, because of the time limitation, does not allow us to answer all the questions. So please bear that in mind and um, appreciate your understanding of this. Mike, we can move towards the next topic. Thank you. Okay. So we have IFRS, IS36, we have IFRS9 and IS37. So probably another hour or so to go on these things. See, who knows? Now, IS 36, um, impairment of non-current assets. Well, obviously, there are going to be significant events now um, because of what's happening, and they're going to require an impairment review. Now, remember, we have two models for impairment. IS 36 is based on the incurred loss model because in IS 36, the non-current assets, the property and so forth, the expectation that you buy a building, you buy equipment, you don't expect to impair it. That differs if you compare it to IFRS 9 financial assets. When you make people loans, you expect impairment. That's an expected loss model. So in this incurred loss model, you know, the first step is there an indication of impairment. Well, if you have a bunch of assets and the government just closed your shop for three months and demand's just gone down the hill and you're not going to be able to make the sales, of course, you have massive indicators of impairment. My expectation would be that almost all companies, almost all companies have indicators of impairment. So the auditors in the past, even in the 08 crisis, I don't think everyone had an issue of impairment like that. I mean, this is worse. You, you turn off companies. I mean, I don't know how long this is going to go for, but um, if this if this uh, lockdown goes for 
six months or five months, um, there's going to be so much disruption and a lot of your assets have a finite life as well. And maybe they won't be able to recover and get your money back during this finite life. You might have to buy new assets later to continue. So I think there's going to be a massive number of impairment indicators. They're going to be everywhere triggering the events. And then, of course, we have to measure the recoverable amount and then make the impairment. Obviously, we have to do annual annual impairment tests for our um, for our goodwill and for, for other aspects, but um, for purchase goodwill, other intangibles, and so forth. But there will be a lot of issues here. So the big issue is when you look at recoverable amount, and a lot of people I don't think grasp this. And U.S. GAAP is a bit more clear because in IFRS we have this concept of value in use and another concept of fair value loss cost to sell. People say, "Well, Mike, well, isn't fair value based on a DCF?" And isn't value use based on a DCF? So what's the difference? And I don't think the standards are very clear, but the way I like to look at it is that value in use is more of a going concern DCF. It's an as is. And fair value less cost to sell is more of a liquidation. So most of the time, you would probably say, I'll put an X through it here, that the liquidation in your impairment analysis is really um, hopefully not going to be the situation because if it's a liquidation, what you tend to find is very, very low asset values and huge losses. So for most entities, organizations, you're going to find that probably the value in use is what you need to determine. COVID-19 has issues that reduces future cash flow expectations. Um, the upcoming recession, I, if you, I presume we're going to be in one, government support, uh, the cash analysis, um, you know, it's messy. I mean, remember in 2008, the U.S. stock market was at a low of 8,000. In this year, it hit the 29,000, and now it's at 20. So these value and use scenarios about what the future cash flows are going to be is really a game of guesswork. And the hardest thing about these is you have to get them through your auditors. And what I always say is you need to remember that the auditor's role is to give an opinion on your numbers. And we want to be careful not let the auditors tell us too much what to do. So my point is in IS 36 with the COVID-19 impact, we don't have a lot of data points to go by. What happens if you turn off the whole world for three months or four months? Well, this hasn't happened in my lifetime, so I have no idea. So when you build up your models, if you say you know, you're lying to me because you have no idea either. So these models are going to be very difficult to do, which means when the auditors come out, they're going to challenge everything in those models. And those challenges are going to give you a headache because the value in use is a DCF. I mean, the way I look at it, most accountants, including myself, we can't do a budget right for one year, let alone five years. The numbers are always wrong. So now you're telling companies in the midst of maximum chaos, to say, okay, give me a budgeted cash flow projection for the next five years. And the auditors are going to then check those to say, is it reasonable? Well, historically, we know 
that most of the time when we do budgets, they're completely wrong. And budgets are usually for a year. So, of course, a five-year analysis is going to be so subjective. So, the challenge that you're going to face is to come up with credible forecasts that will, will meet the audit um, threshold. The auditors will say, okay. Uh, the auditors oftentimes tend to overreact. I mean, going back to 08, there are a lot of provisions there and impairments that were excessive. Um, a lot of references to assets sold. Well, assets sold in 2008, a lot of them were sold well below market value because their people were desperate. I'm sure in the next couple of months, you will find real estate some good deals because there are going to be some people that say, I need money now for whatever reason. Even when my land is worth 100000 I'll get, just take it for fifty because I need the money today. I can't wait. And so you have these transactions that don't represent fair value for IFRS 13 that impact some of your assessments. So the value in use is going to require um, a lot of subjectivity, a lot of discussion, and I think it's going to be a headache. Because we have not, usually when you do a forecast, you base it on knowledge of previous forecasts. Well, there is no previous forecast of the world taking a holiday for three months. Or not a holiday, maybe it's the wrong word, but you know, a, a break. So <laughs> your forecasts are guesses. Um, discount rates, as you'll notice in the second bullet point at the screen, the discount rate is a pre-tax rate. Um, it doesn't, it's not based on the entity's credit standing. So you have two entities, they have the same industry, the same business. The discount rate we use for both of those businesses and their value and use calculations should be the same. If one company is highly geared, another company is not, obviously a highly geared company or one with a lower credit rating uh, has a higher interest rate. That doesn't affect the value and use calculations. Um, to determine those asset-specific rates will become difficult because a lot of asset-specific rates are going to go up. I'd imagine asset-specific rates of cruise ships, of hotels, um, of the travel industry are going to skyrocket because people that get into that industry want a higher return because there is a there is a risk. I mean, a lot of cruise ships might not be cruising. There might obviously we, the ships are built. If, if those cruise ships go bankrupt, someone else is going to buy them at a deep discount with the hope of offering cruises when things change. So those are my points on IS 36. The, the main thing there is cash flow projections, subjective. The standard doesn't say how to do them. The standard doesn't give you a formula. It needs to be reasonable. What you'll tend to find is the auditors tend to um, butcher you and say, I'm sorry, uh, they're not happy. And they challenge everything. You need to, so what you, you need to do and what I cover on my courses, one of the main things I like to teach is how to fight with your auditors effectively. Your auditors are going to say, I'm sorry, nope. Well, you need to be able to audit, audit, argue with the standards. So that's what I wanted to say for IS 36 impairment. Let me pause there for a second. Are there any questions on impairment? So we're on the ECL standard is 
under I first line, which is the next set of slides I'm going to going through. Um, and we only apply that to financial assets. I'll cover that next. So I'm not quite sure what your question is there, but we do not apply the ECL standard to non-current assets under IS-36, which is like buildings and equipment. Are there any other questions that relate to IS-36? Shall I record from Walla the impairment cost, which I'm projecting in this? Yes, you do. The trigger event is, as I said to you, it's probably not COVID-19. The trigger event is the government-imposed mechanism that allowed the light to stop doing business. So to me, COVID, if we had COVID-19 and the government just let us carry on as usual, for most businesses, uh, there might not be a lot of impact. The reality is a lot of people would get sick. A lot, there would be a lot of deaths, but from a business point of view, the impact would be, yeah, on a few deaths. The, the triggering event from an IS-36 point of view is not the COVID-19, but the government says, to stop it, we're gonna make you close your restaurant. We're gonna stop you flying. We're gonna stop borders. So that triggering event, so what IS-36 says is when you have that trigger event, so the trigger event is this first box in the slide here. When is the indication of impairment? Well, when there's a trigger event. What is a trigger event? The government said, I'm sorry, Mike, close your restaurant for three months or six months. That's the trigger event. And you book it when the trigger event happens and the trigger event happens, in my opinion, in March. Um, So where am I? Sorry, that was wallet. Okay, and then Rashada. Well, what I meant, okay, Rashada, Rashada, sorry if I pronounced the names incorrectly, but I'm giving my best. You said, thanks for the webinar. Did you state that only during liquidation we use fair value minus cost to sell? No. What it says in IS-36 is you value the assets at whatever is higher, the value in use or the cost, just fair value less cost to sell. Normally, fair value less cost and sell for most asset groups means you're going to liquidate. And normally, Rashada, when you liquidate, you don't get very much money. So you prefer to keep the business going. So usually a business is worth more as a going concern. Keep it going. And in that case, if that's true, what you would do is uh, normally the va fair value less cost to sell is a small number. It's like selling it for scrap. You're better off to keep it going. A couple of years ago, about 2007, I had this dumb idea 
in my real estate business to get an excavator. And when 08 hip it, 08 happened, um, I had no demand. So I had two choices. I could sell the excavator or I could keep it going and making some money by using it. Now, in my scenario, I worked out it was better for me as a small provider to just sell the excavator and take my loss. For me, my best use was to sell it. And what I recovered was from selling it. But if I have a factory like Coca-Cola and you want to, you know, dismantle it and sell it into, into pieces, probably not going to get very much money. It's probably worth much more as a going concern. Hope that's clear. Um, Rashada and Hamas. Um, <laughs> I like that one. That's not really an IFRS uh, issue. That's a CFMP issue, corporate finance issue. We have another course on that, um, which probably interests you. But do we avoid COVID 19 expenses in calculating key financial ratios? Well, it, it, okay, from what angle? Angle one on your bank loan covenants. In your loan covenants, probably there isn't, there may or may not be a clause that says about COVID-19 or unusual impacts. If I'm doing it from an analyst as a business decision, um, whenever you have unusual items and you analyze it, an investment or a company, of course, you want to take things out that you don't expect to have in the future because the purpose of ratio analysis is to predict the future. And if that was a one-off event, then of course, you would want to take it on your analysis. That's a really, really interesting question, which I will cover in a lot of detail, me or my colleague, Mark Knizel, when we do corporate finance training. Because in IFRS, our role is to prepare the accounts. I think from an IFRS point of view, the angle is probably, does my bank with the debt covenant calculation going to include those? You need to read those contracts very carefully. What about force majeure events? Are those items going to affect the racial calculation? My instinct is the contracts probably don't address it, probably tough luck, they do, and it's gonna affect your debt covenants, um, which is gonna trigger a whole host of issues which we'll cover on in the next topic. And the next one there, IS 36, if a company recorded valuation revenue in 2019 last year, um, valuation revenue, well, we don't really call it valuation revenue. What you're referring to there is revaluation in IS-16, which goes into a revaluation re reserve, which goes to other comprehensive income and not to P&L. The normal drop, well, the impairment um, happens now. You first of all reverse the revaluation reserve, and then it goes to the P&L. But if the market's going to recover, okay, now, sir, this is an interesting question. So, um, impairment is not based on a short-term calculation. It's based on a longer-term calculation. So, if your facts and circumstances assess that because of this, this crisis, um, it's not going to have a detrimental impact to our cash flows over the time horizon, which is the five years, there is no impairment. So, it's not a short-term analysis. It's a long-term analysis. So, we... We really, in, in my course, what I do, I'd, I'd probably need to do a more in-depth analysis of that. It depends what it is, um, but it's probably going to require some sort of uh, detailed analysis. And I need to look at a specific business case. It's very hard to do that one like that. Um, Abdullah is asking me, is discounted 
cash flows and estimating recoverable amounts work here. I'm not sure what that means. Is this kind of cash flows? Sorry. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Are there any other questions? Or can I move on to the next standard? So is this kind of so Abdullah is asking me is this kind of cash flows and estimating recoverable amounts work here, or should we do? Answer my question. Hmm? And Sadullah, I'm not sure what your question is. I'm answering my question. What is your question, Sadullah? Did I miss it? Oh. Macroeconomic model adjustments. Um, obviously, that's you're talking about IFRS 9, I presume. Um, yes, we have to use forward-looking information. I'll cover IFRS 9 in the next in the next one. Any other questions up to there? I, I don't, Abdullah, I'm sorry, I don't follow your question. Um, if you have a loan facility from M. Warris, if you have a loan facility available, does a lockdown of six months pose additional risk of impairment? Definitely. I presume you're talking about from the bank's point of view. So if a bank has to give you money, yeah, that would. Um, can there be Google from Muhammad on merger or Google only on acquisition or business companies? Well, Google is in IFRS is when you buy a business only. <clears throat> now, a business could be a company that's an acquisition by shares, or a business could be where you don't acquire shares, you buy a group of assets, a group of assets, which usually an acquired workforce is a business. So that's when you have goodwill. So goodwill doesn't require having a subsidiary, it requires a business. And uh, I cover that in quite a lot of detail as well on the course. Are there any other questions? Yeah, Mike, uh, you can well, you... move to the next uh, next slide and okay. to the next I first standard. Yeah, thank you. Um, the next topic is an easy one, right? Financial instruments, you believe me there. <laughs> um, if you work for a bank and you work in IFRS reporting, you're going to have a lot of overtime this year because all your models, you could take them and put them in the trash and start from scratch. If you don't work in a bank and you work in a, you know, a manufacturing company or so forth, it should be a lot easier, but it could still be a headache. A couple things before I go, I just, what I did, again, I have a whole 450 slides for a week training. I just selected what I wanted to go through, what are the issues. Um, <clears throat> point one is this happened in 2008. You might have cash or a cash equivalent 
And what might happen because of COVID-19, there might be significant withdrawals from some of these cash funds. And because of the significant withdrawals, what might happen, which could be in some of the fund documents for some of these cash management funds, is they could stop withdrawals because of ex because of excess um, requests for withdrawals. So if, if there are now redemption restrictions, <clears throat> what you had as a cash and cash equivalent is no longer under IFRS 9 cash. And that would need to be uh, recharacterized. If you go back to Cyprus in the last um, financial crisis, they blocked people's bank accounts. Um, we blocked people's bank accounts. And then what they did is they restricted how you can take the money out. And then what they did is they then made people take less out than they had put in. So ignoring the fact that they made you take out less than you put in, the fact that they blocked your account and didn't give you unlimited access to your cash when you want it. Because what is a cash equivalent? I could take it when I want it. The moment they say you can't take it when you want it, it's no longer a cash equivalent. Um, point one. Point two, there'll be significant breaches of covenants. Now, under um, IFRS, a lot of these breaches of covenants are going to trigger liabilities to be reclassified as current liabilities. And they can only be booked as a long-term liability if the lender agrees to any amendments so they're not in breach before the financial statements are issued, so before the interim financials. See, the difference is in U.S. GAAP, you can agree the lender in January for December year in, and you can then call them non-current. But in IFRS, if you agree in January for a condition that existed in December, so you, you didn't meet your ratios, you didn't meet your debt covenants, well, if you resolve that in January, it's December, it's a current liability. So you need to be very careful of all your covenants that are breached. What you want to try and do is, you know, you want to try and resolve them before the reporting periods. There's another significant issue, and <laughs> I had this when I was doing some dealing with some issues in, in South America. Um, when they adopted it, it, there were situations where, this was a while ago, Sometimes you could have some adjustments that might take you to negative equity. And in a lot of countries, especially in the GCC region, the moment you go to negative equity, the company has to be liquidated. Um, so the problem there is negative equity is a big issue. And we need to consider if we have negative equity, there are maybe governmental issues that require us to liquidate. So those are some stuff that I didn't have specific slides for, but I have a couple of slides that I included on um, IFRS 9 that I wanted to talk about in, in more detail. So what we expect to happen is you have challenging issues, you go to your banks and providers of finance and you renegotiate and you get a concession, a modification on the loan. 
So the issue is, do we have one loan from beginning to end? And if we have one loan from beginning to end, then it's easy. We just simply adjust the loan balance. But if we have an old loan, what is changed to a new loan, the old loan is basically derecognized. And usually when there's a concession, there's a gain on extinguishment, which goes to the P&L. So we book a gain or loss because the old loan was effectively settled and we received a new loan. So this is called a substantial modification. There are qualitative issues and quantitative issues. From a quantitative point of view, what they're talking about is you go to the bank and say, there's a substantial modification. I can't pay the bills. You bank, if you make me go bankrupt, you're going to get a lot less money. So bank says, okay, okay, Mike, hang on, hang on, hang on. What we're going to do is not charge you interest for six months. Or what we're going to do is your loan balance was a million dollars. We'll write it down to 800,000. So if you have substantially different terms, now what is that? In the bottom of this slide here, you'll see the 10% test. What I'm saying there is, if the, the new terms discounted cash flows using the original interest rate is at least 10% different from the discounted present value remaining cash flows at the initial rate, what you're basically going to say is the old loan was settled and you have a new loan. That's going to require a calculation from the bank's point of view to book an extinguishment of debt from the company's point of view to book a gain on that loan because basically the, the bank gave you um the bank gave you a concession okay so that's how that works there so the 10 percent test now this next slide there are two audiences here one audience are those that don't work in banks or in financial services firms. And if you don't work in banks or financial services firms, the bad debt calculation is, is much more straightforward. There are still issues. Um, we have this concept when we move to IFRS 9 of the E, the expected credit loss, the ECL, or here I have EL, or sometimes it's called ECL expected credit loss and with the expected credit loss what we've done for the banking sector is we have these different categories they're called stages stage one stage two stage three and sometimes we do a 12-month loss sometimes we do a lifetime loss when it comes to non-banking sector it's the lifetime credit loss <clears throat> so the impact of COVID-19 on the non-banking sector is going to is, is more straightforward because there is no staging analysis. But what we do need to do is work out the amount of that we expect to be irrecoverable. So those calculation assumptions are going to be a little bit more uh, difficult because we don't have past precedent of of who's not going to pay. In the banking sector, remember we have these three stages. We have you know stage one, stage two, and stage three. Stage one is life cycle. Stage one is um, 12 month losses, and stage 
sorry, stage one is 12 month losses and stage two and three are lifetime losses. So when it comes to stage one and stage two, remember the thing there is a significant increase in credit risk. Well, COVID-19 is a significant increase in credit risk. So you're gonna have a lot, a lot of stage one financial assets that go to stage two because of COVID-19. And I don't think the banking sector is prepared for that. We never built models for this kind of disruption. So it's gonna be interesting. Um, we have to look at that. So we, when we do our probably of defaults, we look at forward-looking information, we look at more scenarios, our models will probably be incorrect. The concept of mean reversion where things kind of go back to normal. Well, there's been a lot of articles these days that says, well, because of COVID-19, there might be a new normal. So the mean reversion might be very different. I have no clue. My point is in doing these models of the ECL, the expected credit loss, um, I expect that to be um, challenging, very challenging. Uh, the loss given default where we consider collateral. Well, I've given you a loan and in that loan, there's collateral against some real estate. Obviously the real estate is gonna, I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, that real estate is gonna take a bigger drop than 2008. So for those of you that are cash rich, you'll be buying a new house. For those of you that aren't cash rich, you'll watch your friends buy a new house. The problem is the collateral is gonna tank. When the collateral tanks, your loss given default is gonna tank. The exposure at default, a lot of your models about people drawing down and so forth are probably messed up because you'll probably find in this situation, there are a lot of unsecured borrowings that are gonna be drawn down to say, I've got to cover myself. I mean, what we told our employees in India, I mean, we're still paying their full salaries, but a lot of them made a selection to say, well, I'm not gonna pay my mortgage payment because I don't have to based on the government degree and people are gonna hoard cash. And people are going to maybe, um, my business partner would say, well, why don't you take money out of your overdraft just in case, so we have it set, for, set aside. So a lot of people might max out those. So your exposures are gonna be different. Again, what's very important is the delayed payment. So when we have a delayed payment, that is a credit loss unless you're compensated for the interest, period. Even if you get all the money back, there's a credit loss because you've lost interest income. So if all my clients pay me one year later, you have an ECL, even if they paid you, you have an ECL, you book a credit loss and you have interest income, both for banking and non-banking. So delayed payments is, a, is, is gonna be interesting. Banks are giving payment holidays by force. So it's, it's a significant change in credit risk to go from stage one to stage two. Payment holidays forced on them sometimes by central banks or just out of the situation. So IFRS 9 is a bit of a <laughs> challenge. Um, bankruptcy is gonna go up, customers are gonna have trouble paying you. 
uh, it's going to require a lot of work. And on my training courses, this one is where, you know, especially at the course that I do for banks and I have first nine, this is a, going to be an interesting topic. At the end of the day, these models are subjective. And all you need to do is make sure your model is reasonable. The auditor's role is to say, hey, is that okay? And that's it. Um, let me take a few questions on this. So if you can type in your question box, um, any questions that relate to IFRS 9. Okay. So from Fasaf, um, you're saying how the impact of the ECL, the expected credit loss, will be if the selling company decided to increase the payment period for its customers due to COVID-19. That is delayed payment is an impairment. You book a loss and you have interest income. You change the payment terms, that is impairment. Even you get all the money, it's going to rearrange the characterization. The characterization you book the loss now, and you'll have interest income to get back out to the amount you paid. Sheriff is asking me: moving accounts across the three stages based on the thirty and ninety day triggers, that all accounts will have larger ECLs, which is correct, and constantly reducing the capital accuracy and stop financing companies. I guess banks should pause the IFRS nine for the rest of the year and just be judgmental. <laughs> Um, well, um, <laughs> sure, that's an interesting question. I think what's happening in the U.S. context and probably more in your region, which I need to update myself on, is there will be loads of money from the central bank and the government saying, we want you to uh, keep loans going. Um, but the IFRS requirements will be unchanged. So, we're not going to pause Plan I first nine. I would have thought we'll just have a lot more loans in the 30 day, which is stage two, and the 90 day, which is stage. You remember those are rebuttable presumptions. Going back to the 30 and 90 day rebuttable presumption. Um, remember, for example, in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago, the government there delayed payments to construction industries. Well, if the Saudi government delays a payment to the construction industry, why do they do that? Because the government uses cash accounting, unlike the private sector, and therefore, when you do your cash accounts, you look a little bit more healthy. They were just trying to basically play with the numbers. So, you would probably say, if the Saudi government delays payments, you could probably argue pretty strongly that it's not that's still stage one. It's not stage two because they're going to pay. They're just they're just delaying payments because they use cash accounting. So, the 30 and 90 days we need to understand is that really a significant change or do we have a rebuttable presumption so if it's it depends if it's government or non-government if it's government um there's probably in a lot of situations a rebuttable presumption to say we expect to get paid for example in pakistan when they provide electricity um from the power companies the government to, and it's subsidized by the government the government pays every month the subsidy what happens in the middle of the year the government money runs out 
And then what happens is the AR days of the government subsidy, which the power company needs to get, builds up, builds up, builds up. Then the, the financial year comes, and then the next financial year they pass the budget and they pay that backlog. So even though that those are over 90 days late in the Pakistan environments and the power industry, you would probably say the rebuttable presumption is not really there because we expect to actually get paid. It's just part of the political process. So I would say the 30-90 day issue to me, I would break it down between government and non-government. In government, I'm much more likely to find arguments that it might be stage one. And non-government, much more likely to find arguments that it's stage two and stage three. So Nishet is saying without sufficient historical data of similar of similar situations for non-banking clients, is it fair to say that the impact of COVID-19 on credit loss will be limited? No, it's just you're going to have models that are going to give you uh, if you have if you don't have gray hair yet, Nishet, you will have gray hair because we still have to take it into account. The standard requires us to look at information that's available. Um, no, I mean, just because you don't have historical data doesn't mean you ignore it. It's just these models are going to be um, much more interesting. So you need to consider everything available. Um, if you go into the IFRS 9 standard, you're supposed to look at information that's available, future information. There's uh, information that's probably from World Bank, from different IMF and so forth. So no, my view is it's going to just make your doing these models give you a lot of gray hair or maybe even have you lose all your hair because uh, we haven't done these models before, the auction to come in. And what happened when IFRS 9 came out? So some of the banks I worked with, they had Big Four One as a consultant and then Big Four Two came in as a consultant with a different idea. And then Big Four Three was the auditor who disagreed with uh, Big Four One and Big Four Two. And then Big Four Number Four came in to give their idea. So we had situations when IFRS 9 was adopted where every big four had a different view. So it's just going to be models that are, remember, to, to implement IFRS 9 in the banking sector, that took a couple of years. Uh, there's some slides of that that you can get on the website from, I think, PwC has something where the average implementation was, what, 18 months, two years, or something like that. Well, the problem now is you've got to do this, and you've got to do it now, and you don't have the 18 months. So overtime. Um, Mohammed's asking me, if banks should continue staging rules for private clients getting payment holidays. <clears throat> well, yes, but the staging, um, well, <clears throat> you might modify, you might say, if I give you, Muhammad, um, a holiday for three months, and you still have a good job and you're on leave without pay for three months with an industry which, you, which I expect to go back to work, maybe I would have an argument that your holiday keeps you in stage one. So this is going to require a lot of analysis. So if you, for example, if you gave, uh, uh, if I'm a senior pilot and I said to you, look, because you're number one and you get fired based on your seniority or your hype of the list, you expect that this guy is not going to get fired, but he has no income because he's on a six months um, unpaid from the airline. And you give him a six months payment holiday. And you expect him to come back to work. 
you might look at that and say, well, maybe potentially that might be a stage one situation. This is really messy because we haven't had this before. Does that make sense, Mohammed? I hope so. Um, Jamila. Yeah, so waiving interest is impairment. And when you waive interest, Jamila, you book an impairment. So let's say you owe me $100, I waive the interest, I write it down to $90, and I book the interest effective interest rate to get it back to up to 100. So you owe me 100 a year from now, interest rate is say 10%, round numbers. So a year from now, you owe me 100. If you're plus interest. And I say, don't pay me the interest, so therefore, now it's worth 90. I book an impairment loss today of 90, and over the next 12 months, I accrue interest income. Are there any other questions on IFRS 9? I hope you're all still awake. I can't see your faces. You can see mine, I guess. That's not fair. <laughs> I'll move on to the next topic is going to get a little lighter now. Um, IS 37 provision, provisions, contingent liabilities, and contingent assets. Remember, to have a liability, we must have a present obligation. What does this mean? There must be a past event. In IFRS, you don't book provisions for future losses unless there is a past event. So if you're going to lose money, what normally happens is that's a triggering event under IS 36. And you do an impairment and you write down assets, but you don't, you don't credit um, a liability for future losses. What you do for future losses is you apply IS 36 and you credit assets. With contingent assets, the biggest example there is business continuity insurance. Well, what happened in 08 is a lot of insurance companies went broke. Some went broke. A lot of them were built out by the government. So if you have some sort of insurance that's normally a contingent asset, you might be saying, well, hold on. If there's an element of uncertainty that that insurance that I have won't, um, will not uh, be able to pay, then you can't book it because it doesn't meet the contingent, um, doesn't meet the virtually certain criteria. So again, future losses in IF, IS 37 are not booked. They're booked in IS 36. So remember, this is IAS 36, not IS 37. What will be an issue is onerous contracts. Now, what is an onerous contract? An onerous contract is a contract that you have signed, and what has happened is it went from good to bad. So the contract you signed forces you to lose money. So let's say, for example, a friend of mine has three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants. Now, the company has two restaurants in really good locations and one restaurant in a bad location. Now, my friend is the, owns the restaurants. The other counters, the other counterparty is the operator. The operator says, okay, we have these three restaurants. One of them, it just doesn't make sense to, to operate. But because we have a contract, 
and we have to pay the rent for the next 10 years. And because it's got a corporate guarantee, that one restaurant that we close the door because it's not worth to operate it because in that town, the factory closed and there's not enough people there. Well, what we would say is, well, that con we have a contract, an obligation to make rent payments on it. Belden doesn't give us any benefit. That's an onerous contract. The trigger event there is that you have, you must make payments, you get no benefit. So when that happens, what we're going to be doing is booking losses. The trigger event there is you have to pay for something. It's unavoidable. So the obligation is you sign the contract. And the way I look at it is contracts go become onerous as time passes. There are events that make the contract onerous, such as the factory moved out and that particular Kentucky Fried Chicken has no customers. So therefore, close it. I imagine with COVID-19, there are going to be a number of onerous contracts where you might have a, a restaurant chain and some of your restaurants in the more marginal areas, you might just simply say, we have to close them out. They're not worth it. I mean, after this crisis, if it goes on for a few months in lower income areas, maybe people will stop going out to fancy restaurants. I mean, what, ha what could happen is sit down restaurants could become more popular. Fancy restaurants might not. So there'll be a lot of this under, um, uh, owner's contracts, I would imagine. And of course, that unfortunate thing of restructuring, I had to laugh. I have a business in India and the government sent emails to all business owners saying, please don't retrench any of your employees during COVID-19 and please don't reduce your salaries. That was very fair. But what really made me angry is the government in India, what they did is I have friends that are in Hyderabad, and if you were a government employee in Hyderabad, it's one of the states here in India, the government reduced their salaries by half, your pension. So the government said, don't cut your staff, but our staff are going to cut their salaries in half. Anyways, so I think there's going to be a lot of restructuring issues going on. Um, the key thing is restructuring provisions are based when you have two conditions, a detailed plan and those that are in impacted by it have an expectation. So what that means is communication. So you cannot book uh, impairment or a restructuring provision until communication. I remember years ago, I had a terrible secretary in Hungary and I wanted to get rid of her. And it was December and I got all the approvals from HR to get rid of her. But as a courtesy in our culture, um, December is our big holiday month. I know you have your Ramadan, you have different seasons. So it's not normal to fire someone the week before Christmas. So usually that, that's another Christmas, New Year's. And so the decision was made from management and myself is that we'll let her go in January. So the thing is, I can't book a provision for letting her go because she has no idea until January. It's possible that what could happen is I could change my mind. Just like my office in India, there's people we decided to let go potentially. And then what happened is with COVID-19, people had to work from home. We said, I, I'm not gonna let that person go because they have a computer and a fast internet. So until the other party has an expectation, no provision can be booked. So that's basically uh, the provisions there. So again, what I'm gonna be doing is covering all of these in my webinar, in my detailed course. Um, 
by the way, at the bottom of my screen here, you'll see my LinkedIn. So if you, if you go into LinkedIn and you type Mike Turner CPA, ACCFA, you can, um, you can connect to me on LinkedIn and you can also send me any questions you have there. Um, so just going back to that last topic, if there's any questions on IS 37, please type them in the question box. So Rashad, I see your comment there to summarize them. I'll do that at the very end of the webinar. Let me just first of all take any questions on specifically IS-37. So no questions on IS-37? It probably is the easier one, but it has a lot of impacts here. So let me just do a quick uh, recap as Rashad had requested. I think it's a very good idea there. So IFRS 15, revenue contracts, revenue from contracts with customers. So the issue there is a number of things. Do we have a contract? If we're not gonna get paid and you provide a service, no contract, no revenue to book. Transaction prices. The variable consideration are going to change. Um, when it comes to recognizing revenue, um, we've got to consider, of course, the rebates and so forth, because uh, there's price concessions and all these kinds of things that's going to have an impact. The highly probable threshold, um, disclosing those significant accounting policies, leases. Leases, the main thing there is the price concessions, triggering event recalculations. I don't think the lease modifications is easy to do. It's more gonna be the, the, the detailed work and, and, and time involved to put this together. Um, IS 36 non-current assets. I think almost everybody, so impairment will have to do an impairment review. <laughs> I think it's just, it's just gonna be, um, if you're not good at Excel, you'll become good at Excel and there'll be a lot of assumptions. A lot of those assumptions are gonna be wrong. That's that's life. So th we have a significant triggering event, COVID-19. Reassess the length of time those assets can make us money. We have like a cruise ship. Do we have enough time to return to, to normality to get our money back? Or is it an old cruise ship that has not many years left where we don't have time to return to normality and we have an impairment loss? Those value and use calculations, those cash flows, very, very <laughs> subjective. If you want to go through them with me, I mean, we can do that. But look, the big four, the auditors, trying to make it sound like it's a science. It's an art. It's a guesswork. It's your guess versus someone else's guess. So you know, that's how that goes. When it comes to financial instruments, remember the 10% test on liabilities. So you have a loan, then redo, redone. Com compare the loan with the new one, the present value versus the old one. And if there's a 10% difference, that's going to be a triggering event. That would be a gain on disposal. Um, and then going on to the credit loss. Wow. Um, all your models that you've done for your ECL, if you work in the bank, Take those models and redo them. 
So if you're locked down on COVID-19, get out your Excel spreadsheets, get out your models, and carry on. Because a lot of those assumptions probably are not going to be very valid. Um, you know, from everything from the staging analysis to payment delays, it's, it's a number of them, the models. Provisions, remember the key thing there is we have to have the triggering event. There is no triggering event. Obviously, we can't book it, so future losses generally are going to be booked under IS-36, unless it's an owner's contract, we have a contract signed or restructuring. So, um, I hope you learned a lot from this webinar. I mean, I, I, do, um, I do cover this over a longer course. We have five-day courses and so forth. And, you know, I go through, one of the things I like to do is when I do my training courses and people have been on them could vouch for this, is my case studies go through practical issues. And the thing about my scenarios is they're real-life scenarios, they're not academic. So my course tends to target people that have experience and it's going to the cases. Uh, it's not a basic course. And I think, as you can see from this webinar, I do know a lot of, I've worked, my, my advantage is the global experience. I could bring to you um, labor house done around the world. This is really, really uh, going to cause a lot of issues. Um, if I didn't answer your questions, you can always email them. Uh, you've got my LinkedIn. I can send a voice clip or send them to Philip or come on the course as well. Um, so one last question, Mohammed Mustard says, government monetary support is other income. Uh, probably yes, need to look at what it is. Um, so there's not a lot of detailed guidelines in where we put for that. It depends if it's revenue under IFRS 15 or not. That would be analysis. And because it might not be like a fixed asset sell to come under IFRS 15. But anyways, we covered quite a lot. Um, that was almost, what time is it? Seven, about two hours. Um, we didn't even have a break. Philip didn't let me have a break. Thanks, Philip. So, <laughs> yeah, this is the, the webinar is intended uh, uh, with with uh, no break, so quite intensive and um, to the interest of the attendees, yeah. So let me hand over to Philip to conclude there. Thank you for joining. I hope you learned a lot. Please connect with me on LinkedIn, and um, you have Philip's email if you have any questions or need any assistance in your companies to implement these challenging times. It's obviously going to be a lot of work. Um, probably a lot of uh, guidance is going to be needed because this is unprecedented. The big four don't always have the best answers. There are multiple answers. If you don't like the answer for your environment or for your company, you can look at that to say, well, could it be challenged? We need to look at it. Uh, the big four don't always have consensus, which means there's multiple correct answers. You need to be able to have arguments when you get audited to support your point of view. So anyway, have a good evening. I'm ready for some dinner. Over to Philip. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for the uh, great uh, presentation. And um, of course, for the great insights um, in this current, uh, current situation that we are dealing with, uh, with the COVID-19. Uh, it's quite challenging time, so we need to be informed, especially in the finance and uh, financial reporting. Um, so really, thank you. I would like to thank the attendees of uh, this webinar. We had uh, initially more than 190 people. We're now around 140 uh, for following this uh, great um, and amazing webinar by Mike. Um, all of you actually are entitled 
to a $200 coupon that you can use for any of our courses, any of Leron public sessions that will be scheduled in the next period of time. Uh, we'll send everything through email or you can of course contact me through email. I think you all do have uh, my email, philip.tolorovsky at leron.com. Just uh, email me and uh, of course we can come back to you as soon as possible. Um, we will also have this session um, recorded. Basically we'll upload it on YouTube. So for everyone that uh, um, did not attend and was interested in this kind of topics can attend as well. Thank you very much again for attending and um, I'll, I'll see you soon in another opportunity, I hope. Thank you.